Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program. This is Steve Anderson. Motivation. What motivates your team? How do you get them more motivated? How do you find more motivated prospective team members? How to motivate your patients? How do you motivate your kids? We live in a world where the search for motivation is never-ending. We obviously still have a lot to learn based on the results in team member turnover, patients accepting treatment, and the grades kids get in school. Daniel Pink is a student, a practitioner, and a mentor of motivation. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Northwestern University, holds a law degree from Yale, and spent over two years as a speechwriter at the White House. He is the author of several books, including Free Agent Nation, The Future of Working for Yourself, A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the Future, and his latest work, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, which reached the New York Times bestseller list during its first month of publication. Drive uses 50 years of behavioral science to overturn the conventional wisdom about human motivation and offers a more effective path to high performance that we'll learn about today. So here to mentor us to be better leaders and motivators is this month's Mentor of the Month, Dan Pink. Dan, welcome. Steve, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So if you want people to perform better, you reward them, right? (laughs) Well, it depends. Um, It depends on... (laughs) what you want them to do and when you want them to do it and how long you want the effect to last. I mean, we have, um, we have this idea that it, it is that simple, that if you want people to perform at a higher level, you just reward behavior you want and punish the behavior you don't want. And there actually is some truth to that. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I went back and looked at about 50 years of, of science, 50 years of behavioral science a whole set of really interesting experiments and field studies about what really motivates people. And the truth is is that those kinds of external rewards, particularly these contingent, fairly controlling, what I call if-then rewards, if you do this, then you get that, uh, they, they work pretty well. Uh, they work pretty well in the, for really short-term things, and they work pretty well for, short, for very simple tasks. Uh, you know, turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line or, you know, adding up uh, a bunch of figures. Uh, the problem is, is that the science is equally clear that for the creative, conceptual, complex tasks that most of your listeners do, um, uh, that are the sorts of things that most white-collar workers do, those kinds of uh, rewards, which are the mainstay of how we run organizations, um, just don't work very well. And it's not even a close call. So I've heard you say many times that there's a big difference between what science knows and what business does. How's that the case? Give us some examples. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, if uh, I'll give you, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you the big picture and then a specific example. I mean, as I said before, we think that if you want people to, uh, if we want people to be more creative, what we should do is we should give them creativity bonuses or. Uh, innovation bonuses. We should say, if you come up with something cool and groovy, I'll give you 2000 bucks. And uh, the science is pretty clear that that is just not going to work. Uh, that will give you activity, no question about it. If you were to offer me the $500, excuse me, $500 for doing something right now, I would respond. I'd be, oh, I'd be focused. I'd be saying, hey, what do you want me to do? Um, the, the problem is, is that um, 
those kinds of rewards focus our attention so much. We're so focused on the reward that we're we're blinkered. We're narrowly tuned into the specific to the prize and not to the task. And um, as a result, if you want people to do creative things that require peripheral thinking, um, i.e., coming up with a new product or service, um, those kinds of rewards backfire. So it is. What is it that motivates someone to be creative? Then, well, I mean, I think that human beings, by their nature, uh, have a drive to be creative. I mean, if you look at any kid, uh, he or she is creating things. Uh, I think that eventually gets. I think that's our natural behavior: to be creative, to be active, to be engaged. I think that I, I really do. I think that is human nature. Uh, I think that it's it's uh, an aspect of human nature that is fairly fragile in that it can be undone relatively quickly by school, by families, by, uh, by, by work. But, I mean, if, if you want to listen to the science, as you were saying before, if business really wants to do what science knows, uh, the pathway to creativity, the pathway to engagement, uh, isn't trying to control people, but offering uh, enormous amounts of autonomy. That is, um, in, in business, and, I, you know, I think that, you know, your listeners who are running typically much smaller operations aren't as um, uh, infatuated with the whole concept of management. But, you know, management um, is a technology of sorts, and it's, it's a technology designed to get uh, compliance. And you, you don't become creative by compliance. Uh, uh, management is a technology for compliance, uh, but the pathway to engagement and creativity is self-direction and autonomy. So you talk about the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivators, which is really at the core of your whole argument. So explain to us the difference between the two. Well, these are you know fairly well-known notions in the field of psychology. Um, you know, in some ways, it's not as it's, it's actually not as clear-cut as as we think. But essentially, you know, in, when you do something out of intrinsic motivation, you're doing it because you want to do it. You're doing it for its own reward. Um, so, you know, maybe you're, you're playing the piano on the weekend, even if it's not going to make you any money. You just like doing it. Uh, an extrinsic uh, uh, motivator is um, something from the outside where your boss says to you, you know, if you complete this assignment quickly, you can be employee of the month this month. Um, and, you know, all of the, obviously all human beings are a mix of intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. Uh, my view is that we've, we've relied way too much on extrinsic motivation, particularly a certain kind of extrinsic motivation, uh, and we often have neglected um, nurturing people's intrinsic motivation. Now, again, it's not as black and white. I mean, it's not as black and white as that. That there are certain kinds of extrinsic motivators that are that are fine. Again, if you want people to do relatively, if I want people to stuff envelopes, uh, I should pay them by envelope. Okay, I, that'll work pretty well. We'll stuff them faster. Um, obviously, if you have uh, an employee, uh, if you're if you're running a, a, a an office and you've got an employee, you got to pay that person enough. If you don't pay that person enough, that person's not going to be motivated. Um, but a lot of these extrinsic rewards, um, they, they work best when they're a form of feedback, uh, and they work best when they just establish a, a level playing field. But for really high performance, you need the internal motivation. All right. So if you can help us define, because you're, you're challenging what in business many would say is conventional wisdom, uh, but you've, you, you haven't thrown the whole argument out. Define for us a little more clearly as far as extrinsic motivators and what types of work 
can benefit from extrinsic motivators? Where do you draw the line? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, I think one of the big distinctions is uh, is the difference between routine work and non-routine work. Um, uh, routine work is work you can reduce to a script, to a spec sheet, to a formula, to a series of steps uh, that has the right answer. Uh, and that's everything from blue-collar work, as I mentioned before, you know, standing on an assembly line, turning the same screw the same way over and over again all day, uh, to all very kinds of white-collar work, uh, you know, processing paper in an insurance company or, uh, you know, constantly adding up uh, uh, columns of figures in an accounting firm or, uh, you know, even to some extent writing certain kinds of very, very basic software uh, code. Um you know, the, the way the psychologists talk about this is algorithmic work, algorithmic challenges. That is, there's an algorithm, a formula, a recipe for solving it, okay? And that's, um, that's and for those kinds of, um, that kind of work, the kind of classic extrinsic motivator, again, I call it an if-then motivator. If you do this, then you get that. They actually work reasonably well. Um, uh, and using them in those kinds of circumstances, um, isn't necessarily a bad idea. You have to be careful, but I mean, it's not. It's not like you should throw them out entirely. All right. So, why, from a psychological standpoint, why do extrinsic motivators work in situations like that? Well, those kinds of if-then motivators, they have, as I was mentioning earlier, they have. A, they, they focus our attention. All right. They. It allows you to eliminate distractions. Um, uh, uh, you know, focus on the task right in front of you. Stare straight ahead. But for tasks that are, you know, algorithmic, where you're following a recipe, that's good. You don't want to have any kind of uh, distraction. You don't actually want to think all that creatively. You want to follow the formula. You want to follow the recipe. You want to march down those steps. And uh, that's why uh, extrinsic if-then motivators, again, if you do this, then you get that, they work really well because they get you to focus. They, they, they sharpen your focus. They, they concentrate the mind. Uh, that's why they're um, that's why they're effective. Now, what's curious is that the, that's exactly the same reason they don't work for the more creative, conceptual sorts of work. Again, we get psychologists talk about algorithmic work and heuristic work. Again, heuristic work is you're not there isn't a formula to follow um, for that kind of work. Uh, you don't want to be too not tightly focused on the task in front of you because you're not going to be able to see creatively. You're not going to be able to see the periphery. You're not going to be able to make new combinations. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons, I mean, again, sort of related to this, is one of the reasons why, um, you know, if, if people are trying to come up with a, solve a complex problem, one of the best things they can do is get up from their desk and take a walk. That is not stare straight at the problem, but think a little bit more expansively. And if then motivators, um, you know, concentrate our mind, narrow our focus. That, that makes them great for routine tasks and not so good for non-routine tasks. How do you then define what an intrinsic motivator is? Well, I mean, intrinsic motivation is when, when you do something because you want to do it. Um, uh, you do it because it is um, um, uh you do it because you enjoy it. You do it because it's part of who you are. You do it because you, you, you want to, uh, you know, and, uh, and that's a big part of, of, of what, human beings, what human beings do. That is, you know, we have, um, I mean, 
in the book, I don't talk so much about this dichotomy between extrinsic and intrinsic, but I talk about it in terms of, you know, a sort of a whole set of drives that we have. Uh, human beings have, one drive that human beings have is that we have a biological drive, obviously. Uh, we eat when we're hungry, we drink when we're thirsty. We have sex when, when satisfy, you know, those kinds of urges, right? That's part of what it is to be human. It's just, it's not all that it is, because we have a second drive. Uh, we respond very well to rewards and punishments in our environment. Uh, typically, you know, many, many cases, if you reward something, you get more of the behavior you want. Uh, if you punish it, you get less of it, okay? That's part of who we are, too. Um, what, I think we, what we've forgotten, particularly in our organizations, is that we also have a third drive. Uh, we do things because they're interesting. We do things because we like them. We do things because they're the right thing to do. And that third drive, again, which is much more intrinsic, is, um, you know, powerfully important. It's very much... Um, it's very much, um, you know, part of who we are. It's actually one of the things that makes us human. Uh, the problem is, is that we, we tend to ignore it once we get into the workplace, uh, when in fact increasingly it's becoming the path to uh, high performance uh, because more and more work is going from algorithmic to heuristic. You talk about three characteristics of a job that's designed to benefit from intrinsic motivation. Tell us about those. You know, so here's the theory of the case here. What, you know, what the research shows is that um, if you want people to do simple things, those kinds of contingent if-then rewards um, are actually not that. Um, uh, if you want them to do more creative, conceptual, complex things, they're actually not a very good idea. So the question is, it, as more and more people do this non-routine, heuristic, creative, conceptual work, how, do you, how, do people, how are people motivated to do that kind of work? And, again, the science yields some answers. Um, it essentially, what it means, as we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, what it means is um, uh, giving people enormous amounts of freedom and control and self-direction so that they can work uh, when they want, uh, doing what they want to do, you know, the way they want to do it with the folks they want to do it with. Uh, so that's autonomy. That's one. Uh, the second one is mastery. That is, human beings, by their very nature, uh, we like to get better at stuff. We like to make progress. That, that is a, a you know, profoundly important human motivator. Uh, and when it's missing or when it's thwarted, uh, people are profoundly demotivated. So mastery, the desire to get better at something that matters. And finally, uh, a purpose, that we like to do what we do in the service of something larger than, your, than ourselves, that we wanted to make a contribution, that we wanted to have meaning, that we wanted to actually influence the world. And so if you really want people to do the creative conceptual work that most businesses say they want their employees to do, um, you really have to provide autonomy, mastery, uh, and purpose. Without it, uh, you're going to get a lower level of performance. In your research that you've done, Dan, can you give us some examples of some organizations that have done a really good job of building those three characteristics into their job design? Uh, sure. I, um, I mean, one of my favorite examples, you know, very simple, um, very actionable thing that, that I think other organizations and other companies can do uh, comes from the company uh, Atlassian. Now, Atlassian is an Australian software company, um, and they do something really cool. Once a quarter... They say to their software developers, go work on anything you want. Um, do it, you know, however you feel like doing it. Do it with whomever you feel like doing it with. Uh, um, uh, all we ask is that you show what you've created uh, to the rest of the company on Friday afternoon. Okay, so once a quarter Thursday afternoon, they get 24 hours to do what they want. 
uh, on Friday afternoon, they show what they've created. Uh, they call these things FedEx days because you have to deliver something overnight. Well, lo and behold, that yeah, one day, that one 24-hour stretch of intense, undiluted autonomy has led to a whole array of fixes for existing software, a whole array of ideas for new products that had otherwise never emerged. Now, this is not the kind of classic contingent motivator that we think is the be-all and end-all. Uh, you know, it's not saying if you come up with something great, we'll give you a big reward. Uh, it's essentially just getting out of people's way. Uh, and so, you know, and, and what is – and. You know, it, it, so it certainly satisfies the criterion of autonomy. I think it satisfies the criterion of mastery uh, because it allows people to work on something that they want to work on and, and that allows them to get better at something, to sharpen their, their skills. And then because so many of these fixes are ultimately adopted, there's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of purpose in that you're making a contribution to the larger whole. There's a sense of purpose in that you're contributing to this, you know, this great fun uh, meeting and, and venture that the company is doing. And so that's just one you know, very small example of a very different approach to, to motivation. Now, again, Steve, these approaches, um, things like that, or you know, it's, it's cousin 20% time where people can spend 20% of their time working on anything that they want, or the results-only work environment where people don't have schedules, they show up when they want, if they want, they just have to get their work done. These kinds of things, um, you know, are not mainstream yet. I mean, you, you see them percolating on the, on the edges, and I think they're going to move into the mainstream fast. But for now, um, for now, they're the exception. We're very much stuck in most of our organizations with what I think is a, is a fundamentally outdated and even worse, uh, unscientific approach to motivation. So your your view is that we tend to err on the side of being totally and extrinsic motivated in how we design our job descriptions, our rewards, that we've focused way too much on that, but you're not throwing it out altogether. No, I mean, no, you can't throw it out for a whole host of reasons. Number one, I mean, you know, an extrinsic reward is a paycheck. And, you know, money is a very, very important motivator, um, uh, but not in quite the way that we expect. So, you know, if you don't pay people enough, uh, if people aren't being compensated fairly, you're not going to get motivation. Um, you're going to get uh, uh, people doing the minimum amount necessary not to get fired. Um, so you've got to pay people enough. Uh, so you know, money is an extrinsic motivator. Um, however, once you pay people enough, or you know, I would argue pay people a little bit more than enough, um, additional units of money don't have a huge effect in additional units of performance or job satisfaction. They just don't. Um, what matters more are autonomy, mastery, and purpose. However, if you don't hit that level, if you don't pay people enough at the outset, it's, it's essentially impossible to get, um, to get enduring motivation. Likewise, um, there's a different kind of reward, an external reward, that I call now that reward. So um, if, I, you know, if I ask you to, if you're in my office and I say, I need you to redesign the web, I want you to redesign the website, if you do something amazing, Steve, I'm going to give you a $3,000 bonus, that's probably not very effective. But if I go to you and I say, Steve, we need to redesign website. You're the person to do it. You've got all the skills. Uh, here's, the, here's the mission. Um, do it the best way you can. I'm here to help you answer questions, give you feedback. Um, and then if you later on then do a, a great website for our, our company, um, if I say to you, um, wow, that was great, thanks, that's an extrinsic reward. If I say to you, come on, Steve, I want to recognize you in front of the entire organization, that's an extrinsic reward. Uh, if I say after the fact, hey, here's a $1,000 bonus, that's an extrinsic reward. 
Uh, the key difference is that it's not an if-then reward. I'm not trying to control your behavior. If you do this, then you get that. It's what I call a now-that reward. I say, now that you've done this, uh, here is, um, um, you know, uh, praise or gratitude or, or money. Now, it, you know, it gets to be a little bit dangerous if that, after the fact, now that reward becomes a entitlement. But, um, you know, the key thing here is that we think that the way to get people to perform at a higher level uh, is by trying to control their behavior. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, even the way we talk about it is if, you know, so-and-so, you know, Bob is going to motivate Maria. Bob needs to motivate Maria. Well, one of the scholars that I write about, one of the heroes of the story of this unfolding science of motivation is a guy named Edward Deasy, and he says in the book, um, you know, we got to get over this idea that motivation is something that one person does to another. It's not. Motivation is something that human beings do for themselves. And so the key is to put people into situations when they can, where they can draw on their own um, in, in, intrinsic motivation. Um, and, you know, and I think if we think about our own experiences, um, we, we understand that. If you think about our, our experiences not being bosses, we understand that. If you look back, people look back on their best bosses. Uh, you know, think about their career, whom they've worked for, and think, God, who was my best boss? You know, they don't say, oh, yeah, uh, uh, Debbie was my best boss because she was so controlling. She told me everything. She told me how to do everything. She told me exactly what to do, when to do it, gave me no freedom to do it the way that I wanted. She was breathing down my neck the whole time trying to control my behavior. Nobody says that. Um, and so, you know, I think we got to get rid of this kind of misplaced reliance on management and control and have greater faith that in, in human nature um, and the belief that human beings are fundamentally active and engaged. And if you just provide autonomy and some measure of accountability, people are going to do a lot better. So it sounds like in, in most cases, most jobs benefit from both intri intrinsic and extrinsic motivators because there's a certain portion of every job that's routine. You just got to slug through it, get it done. And then there's a certain portion that is creative in nature that you want to add value to the job. So how do you balance those out and find the right mix for that, for any particular job? Well, again, I mean, I think that the right mix involves, uh, you know, paying people enough at the outset. That's, that's huge. If you don't do that, you're going, to be in, you're going to be in big trouble. Then I think it's really strategic use of the, you know, then of providing people enormous amounts of autonomy, putting them in conditions where they can get better at something that matters, um, and then infusing what people do with a greater sense of purpose and significance. Um, now, there is, you know, there, there also are ways to use these kinds of, um, um, you know, if if then type rewards um, again for simple tasks, um, but you know it, it's helpful. For instance, let's say somebody's doing something. Say somebody's stuffing envelopes. Okay, this is a classic kind of example. Someone's stuffing envelopes, um, and I want to say I want them to do it quickly and well. So I say I'll give you a dime for every envelope successfully stuffed. Now I don't have to worry about crushing their in intense desire for stuffing envelopes because I'm paying them, okay? There isn't much. I don't have to worry about suffocating their, their creativity because there isn't much creativity in, in envelope stuffing. So I can offer that kind of if-then if reward, but I'm likely to do better uh, and, and get better performance and, and it, it, by explaining to people uh, the rationale for 
the task. So I say we're stuffing envelopes because we're doing a big mailing that's important for raising money for our organization. Uh, if you acknowledge that the task isn't very interesting, I know stuffing envelopes isn't, it's, it's kind of boring, but the reason we're doing it is X, Y, and Z. Uh, and if you allow people to complete the task more or less their own way, so you don't say, here's how I want you to stuff envelopes. You have to stuff it exactly the way that I tell you to stuff it. And I think if you do that for these, um, um, for these uh, routine tasks, you'll, um, you'll see much greater satisfaction and even higher performance. So in a situation like that, where, where you get, do give some degree of autonomy, uh, and maybe, for example, we could step into a factory where everything is very systemized, you have to follow the procedures, but at the same time, you would like to create an environment where the people that are closest to the task could give suggestions and perhaps come up with some ideas to improve the process to make it more efficient, more effective. How do you incorporate then the intrinsic aspect there uh, to to keep the creative juices flowing and continually improve? Well, you know, I, I actually think that you know, I actually think more broadly, you should, you know, don't over rely on these these if then motivators even for the more routine work. I think that that these the principles of autonomy, mastery, and purpose apply with equal apply with force to you know very powerful force to any kind of work. I'm going to give you one cool example of this. Let's take, you know, probably one of the least desirable white-collar jobs in America, which is um, working in a call center. It's usually terrible, crappy work. You're sitting at a cubicle. uh, You've got a headset on. A call comes in. It beeps in your ear. You quickly try to type in a few things to call up the particular script. You read that script quickly to the person on the other end trying to just batch the call as quickly as possible. Um, There's very little autonomy. Uh, calls are almost always monitored. Calls are almost always screened. Uh, calls are almost always timed. Uh, this is a, the job tenure for a call center person in this country is, um, the turnover, rather, for a call in, in the call center industry in this country is, is about 100% a year. Uh, it's crazy. But, you know, then you can then you take a company like Zappos, uh, who decides to do things differently. And what Zappos did is Zappos took a much more autonomous and self-directed approach. It said, you know, we're going to have to have call centers because our customers are going to call in with questions and complaints and um, other sorts of things. And they said, let's just do it differently. So they give their workers two weeks of training, and then they station them at their desk. And they say, when a call comes in, here's your job. Solve the customer's problem. Uh, do it your way. Do it however you want. Uh, no scripts, no monitoring, no timing. Um, you know, if it takes you an hour, that's fine. If it takes you a minute, that's fine too. Um, now, of course, Zappos gets feedback from customers about how they're doing, that this more autonomous approach isn't this kind of willy-nilly, we don't really care what happens. Um, uh, so Zappos gets feedback from customers, and lo and behold, Zappos comes out of nowhere to have one of the highest customer service ratings of any industry, uh, in America. Um, and uh, they did it by saying, you know what, this, there's nothing inherent about this job in a call center that everybody thinks is, is soul-hollowing, deadening, and routine. We can recast the job, infuse it with greater autonomy, and people will perform at a higher level. So I think it's, you know, I think that it's applicable, autonomy, master, and purpose are applicable at every level. You give a very good example of it in, in, um, um, in even kind of routine uh, checklisted work, whether it's in some medicine or, or, or assembly line, um, you, you need a certain amount of autonomy in the system so that um, if, 
you know, let's say you have a, in surgery, someone is following a set of rules. I mean, you want a certain amount of routinization in surgery. Um, um, and, you know, one of the things that's happened in medicine is the move toward these checklists, which have been hugely powerful. Um, what you also need is you need some autonomy in there. So if the surgeon skips a, uh, a step on a checklist, you know, the lowliest uh, scrub nurse can raise his or her hand and say, excuse me, big shot doctor so-and-so, you missed a step. Um, and so, you know, it's possible to, you know, have routines within an organization but have enough autonomy down there so people can, as you say, uh, fix things and make them better. You're uh, familiar with our Smiles for Life campaign now, 13 years in the running. It's raised over $27 million for charity. Sure. And everybody involved donates something for the amazing outcome that's come out of that. Talk to us uh, maybe directly here to the Crown Council practices that uh, participate this and how they can employ some aspect of what works for Smiles for Life because it is a big intrinsic motivator uh, in the rest of the year in their daily work. Well, I think it's important to understand why it works. Um, you know, why does it, you know, why does it work? I mean, my analysis of it, and you should tell me, my analysis of it, it works because people have some amount of freedom over what they do, but it also works because there's a, 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 a higher purpose. Um, and that's a pretty potent combination right there. And I think that, you know, all of these, the practices that, you know, are represented by your listeners and any kind of uh, office more broadly uh, can, 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 can take a step back and say, listen, how can, you know, do I myself want to be controlled all the time? No. Well, if, I, if that's how I feel, most people probably have a similar point of view. Um, so what can I do as the leader of the office or as the head of the practice to infuse greater autonomy? And uh, I think there are all kinds of steps that people that, that, that you can take. I mean, you can go to this FedEx Day experiment that I mentioned. Uh, you can loosen up schedules considerably if that's possible. Um, uh, you can, you know, maybe go to some very, very modified version of 20% time. And, um, you know, if you if you move toward that, uh, you know, kind of autonomy, the autonomy that people have when they're participating in a charitable endeavor, I think that's huge. The other thing is that I think a lot of times at work, uh, we've lost a sense of purpose. Um, you know, we're so enmeshed in the day-to-day maw of things that we don't re- remember why we're there in the first place. And I think that the, the, the campaign that you're talking about has purpose so central and salient that that's one reason it's so motivating. And I think that individual offices, they, you know, if you're an individual dentist, uh, I think it's really important to think about, you know, what's the purpose of your office? What what are you there for? Um, you know, you're not there simply to um, clean teeth and process forms. You are there to make people's lives better in some way. And uh, the more that that becomes something that people are thinking about, talking about, something that is salient, something that is in the air, uh, the more you'll see motivation increase considerably. In putting together Drive, you went back through 50 years of behavioral science And I'm sure that as you did that, you stumbled across some studies that were very eye-opening to you that you perhaps even said, where has this been and why doesn't anybody pay attention to this? Because this is good stuff, but no one's doing it or nobody's applying that in business. Can you give us an example of maybe one or two things like that that you came across that were remarkable? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, as you know, I mean, the book is, you know, littered with with um, 
with those kinds of those kinds of examples. I mean, one of the uh, you know, uh, well, I guess one of my one of the most alarming studies, just you know, reasonably well known in the field of education psychology, uh, have to do with a study that was done in a preschool at Stanford in in uh, the 1970s, where uh, and it's actually a pretty good illustrator of of this, you know, how, why intrinsic and extrinsic isn't necessarily the most important divide, and other things are. So here's what happened. So uh, it's preschool. They, they observed a preschool class. These researchers and they and they selected the kids. They found a bunch of kids in the preschool class who, during their free play time, uh, drew. They spent a lot of their free play time drawing. Um, so these are kids obviously who were interested in drawing. And then they conducted an experiment with these kids where they they, they took them in, into this you know other setting, and they divided the kids into three groups. Uh, to the first group, they said, um, if you draw something. Uh, I'll give you this shiny certificate with your name on it, you know, that says I'm a great drawer, or words to that effect, okay? That's, that was the first group. If you, They went to the second group, and they said, um, draw if you want to. Now, if those kids ended up drawing, after the fact, they gave the kids a shiny certificate with their name on it. Uh, in the third group, they said, draw if you want to, and um, they, didn't get, they weren't promised a reward in advance, and they weren't given one um, afterwards. Okay, so, and not surprisingly, in all those three circumstances, the, the kids drew, okay? Uh, you know, the kids drew in some of them because they wanted the prize. They drew in other of them because they liked drawing. Okay, again, these are kids who like to draw. So cut fade out. Um, they then observed the, the preschool class a, a couple weeks later, uh, and in particularly these kids whom they've selected for this experiment. And it turns out that the kids in that final group, you know, draw if you want to, nothing before, nothing after, those kids were still drawing during free playtime. Uh, the the kids in the second group, the ones who were not promised a reward at the at the beginning, but did get one at the end, those kids were still drawing, uh, which is really important. But that first group, the people who were promised a reward for drawing and then given one, uh, they were no longer drawing during free playtime. That this external, this controlling if then motivator, uh, this controlling external reward, ended up squashing a lot of their internal personal desire to to do something that is they lost interest in something they were interested in because of the presence of these external certain kinds of these external rewards i found that you know incredibly eye-opening because unfortunately most of our schools and a lot of our parenting is falls into that first category if freddie you do this then you get that so moral of the story be very careful what you choose to reward extrinsically the moral of the story is, um, you know, especially in work, is uh, get the external factors right and get them out of the way. So pay people enough, pay people a little bit more than enough. That is, pay people enough so that you take the issue of money off the table and people can focus on their work. Uh, and once they're focused on their work and they have plenty of autonomy, mastery, and, and a sense of purpose, uh, then I think people will perform at a higher level. But the idea that you can endlessly dangle a carrot in front of someone or try to control them or lure them into high performance uh, is fundamentally mistaken, at least for the sorts of things that most white-collar workers do today. So if uh, you were to identify two or three major takeaways from your immense amount of work that you've done to put Drive together, uh, what are the biggest takeaways from, from the book in summary? Uh, well, I mean, I think that there's some particular. I mean, I think that the the big idea here is that um, that that carrots and sticks, those kinds of external if-then motivators, are great for 20th century work, but 
sink to high heaven for 21st century work and that we need to uh, upgrade from carrots and sticks to autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That's the key conceptual takeaway. Um, there are all kinds of other, uh, you know, uh, specific actions, exercises, activities that I write about in the book that I think would be useful. Uh, I mean, I mentioned doing a FedEx day. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of bosses um, uh, giving their, the folks whom they work with an, an autonomy audit, where on a scale of zero to ten, you ask everybody, how much autonomy do you have over your time at work? You know, what when you do it. How much autonomy do you have over uh, what you actually do over your task at work? How much autonomy do you have over your, your team, who you do it with? How, many, how much autonomy do you have over your technique? Uh, ask them those four questions uh, and have them rate on a zero to ten scale how autonomous they are. And I think that is often a, uh, a revelation for, uh, I think it's often a, a revelation for, for, for managers. Um, uh, and a lot of times what you see, well, the pattern that I've seen is very peculiar, is that you'll often find uh, organizations uh, that are dissatisfied showing that they have, they're have they very high on three but very, very low on one. So people have autonomy over their time, but they don't have autonomy over their technique, or they have autonomy over their, over their team but no autonomy over their time. Um, and I think that's a really good you know, diagnostic tool for, for people. Uh, on mastery, uh, I'm a big fan of do-it-yourself performance reviews. That is, don't outsource performance reviews. Don't let, um, you know, uh, bosses do that. That, you, that in order for performance reviews to be valuable, they have to be much more regular and much more focused to an individual's needs and goals. So a do-it-yourself performance review would be at the beginning of the month, uh, set out your goals for that month. Uh, you know, both learning goals and performance goals. And then at the end of the month, call yourself into the office and give yourself an evaluation. Where are you making progress? Where are you falling behind? What sorts of tools and tips do you need to, and information do you need to get better? Uh, I think that, you know, this is what athletes and musicians have always done. They have mechanisms for self-assessment. I think it's what all of us need to do, that we need some way to systematize uh, about setting our own goals and evaluating ourselves. I think that's the pathway to mastery. And then finally, it's purpose. I mean, as I mentioned, you, you know, what, what really gets people out of bed in the morning racing into the office to do something amazing is a sense of purpose. I, and I think a lot of organizations are a little bit cloudy on their purpose. And one of the, my favorite exercises in that regard is something called Whose Purpose Is It Anyway?, uh, where you take your team and you pass around some blank index cards, and then, and then you ask people on that card, please write for me, this organization's or this team's purpose, <laughs> um, and then um, uh, you know, hand the cards back to me. Don't sign them. Hand the cards back to me, and then I'll read them aloud. Uh, what you find is it is a very, very stark split. A lot of them, you have employees saying basically the same thing um, that there is a sense of animating purpose in that particular organization. In others of them, you'll get 15 people, 15 different answers, or you'll get 10 different answers and five question marks. Uh, and that's a sign where people aren't quite, you know, rowing in the same pattern. Uh, and it often can be the beginning signs of some kind of demise. Great suggestions. Ultimately, Dan, when you look at an organization that is going to adopt your principles, what do you hope for them is, is the outcome? Uh, I think it's a bunch of things. Number one, I, I think that it is, um, uh, I think they'll be able to attract uh, new and better talent. I think this will be able to help their workforce become much more satisfied and, and productive. 
And so, again, you know, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to do, which you alluded to very early here, is kind of get us past this folklore. And that's all that it is, that the way that people do better is with an is endless arsenal of carrots and sticks. It just isn't correct. Uh, and if we, if we get past the folklore and start listening to the science, um, I think that we can um, – I think that people can, can enjoy their work more, and I think that they can do better, and that, that benefits everybody, bosses, customers, spouses. Perfect. Thank you for the, uh, the insight and for the tremendous amount of research. It's uh, great stuff. Tell us how Crown Council members can get a copy of Drive. And, and I'll mention this, uh, Dan, a lot of the Crown Council members know that I have a top 10 list of my personal business favorites, and you have landed in the top 10. So uh, it's not easy to get there, but uh, wow, it, awesome. is, it is a great piece of work. So tell us uh, how they can get a copy of well, it. Well, they can go to Steve's top 10 list, number one. <laughs> there um, you go. Or, uh, yeah, you should be able to find the book. It's called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Um, you know, in any uh, big bookstore or your local independent bookstore, or from uh, Amazon.com or any of your uh, any, or your other favorite uh, online bookseller. Uh, if you're a Kindle or iBook or iPad reader, uh, there it's in that format as well. And uh, in several languages too, I understand. Uh, yeah, we're in a bunch of we're over 200, uh, 200, two hundred two hundred two uh, two dozen two hundred <laughs> two dozen languages right now. So, That's great. Uh, coming out in Japanese uh, next week. Um, uh, uh, we've got it in, coming out in, in Spanish uh, later this year, uh, German later this year, uh, already out in Portuguese, Swedish is out in the UK. So, um, um, you know, we're from you know, the top 25 languages, you'll find a copy in, in that too. Depending on your language of preference. So it's Daniel Pink, and the book is Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Daniel, thanks for your time and your insight and for sharing with us today. Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.